When I first read the gospel lesson earlier this week, I thought it's easy to say that everyone should have a place at the table, that the Pharisees and scribes are lost and wrong and the true sinners. But as someone who converted from Judaism, I can tell you that Judaism then and now is very tribal with, a, with clearly delineated lines about who is in and who is out. And according to my mother, I'm out. The Pharisees and scribes were religious leaders, part of the tribe of clean, God-obeying folks. And the sinners and tax collectors were outsiders who had clearly turned away from God. So for the Pharisees and scribes, it made sense that those inside the tribe didn't eat with those outside. These religious authorities usually get a pretty raw deal in the New Testament. So using what my husband calls the hermeneutic of charity, let's imagine for a moment that these Pharisees and scribes were not actually evil. It's kind of a good practice. We can disagree with people without thinking they're evil. They worked hard to follow the rules. Not just the Big Ten, but the 613 Levitical commandments as well. And they worked hard not just to be holy for themselves, but to set a good example. They thought it was the way to God, and they weren't wrong in their own time. The covenant between God and Israel was really clear. If Israel followed God's commandments, number one being to have faith in God alone and not turn to idols, then Israel would be God's special possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God would fight for Israel and overcome all her enemies. And finally, God would treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgive her sins. So maybe the Pharisees and scribes believed that their harshness with sinners was for the sinner's own good and for Israel as a whole. Tough love. I don't know if any of you watch Bill Maher, but there was a big controversy this past weekend when he did a segment where he publicly called out for a return to fat shaming which, by the way, has never left. It's actually one of the last remaining socially acceptable forms of oppression and discrimination. He made all the same worn and stupid jokes about illness and airplane seats. He laughed, the audience laughed. I was horrified, how dare he? For most people, being fat might be no different than being black or being disabled. For many, or for most people, it's a matter of genetics, not laziness or a lack of willpower. And just to be clear, all bodies are good bodies to God. And lest anyone be offended by my use of the word fat, I'm using it here on purpose. There is a body liberation movement of which I am a part that is choosing to reclaim that word as a neutral signifier, like short or tall, to take the shame out of it. Bill Maher wasn't using it that way, 
but judging him with the hermeneutic of charity. I'll grant that maybe he thought he was doing fat people a favor, you know, shame them into changing their behavior and devoting their entire lives to becoming smaller so that they could fit some false and impossible beauty ideal. Tough love. I know a little something about that. When I was growing up, I was bigger than I am now, and my mom hated it. She tried, just like Bill Maher, to shame me into losing weight. She publicly weighed me. She had my doctor yell at me. She made cruel comments about my body. You know, tough love. She shamed me constantly for being what she considered overweight, and guess what? That shame never made me eat less. In fact, it made me eat more because I was depressed, anxious, ashamed, and feeling unloved. It took years and years of prayer and therapy to get past that shame, and it still haunts me sometimes. In response to Bill Maher, James Corden, another late-night host who happens to be in a large body, another neutral signifier, did a very funny but also kind of sad rebuttal segment. And he got some things wrong, but what he got absolutely 100% right was that fat shaming is just bullying dressed up as concern. And there are tons of scientific studies proving that stigma causes more illness than weight itself. And again, to be clear, all bodies are good bodies in God's eyes. The certain truth is that shame and condemnation are not effective ways to get people to change. But the Pharisees and scribes don't seem to know that. They're sure they've got it right. They are just trying to help those poor sinners repent and be more like them. So imagine their shock and anger when Jesus comes along and tells them they've got it all wrong. Worse, Jesus is letting the sinners and tax collectors off the hook, and now they have no incentive to follow the rules. Imagine if you're a Pharisee or a scribe and you've sacrificed your whole life to be this way and follow every rule perfectly, and then you find out that maybe you didn't have to. Maybe you could have taken a day off every now and then and watched Netflix while eating ice cream right out of the container. What the Pharisees and scribes don't get is that Jesus' incarnation turned the world upside down and inside out. In the gospel, the starting point is grace. The shepherd doesn't condemn the lost sheep, and the woman doesn't blame the lost coin. They search, they find, and they rejoice. And think about this, it's kind of mind-blowing. To be lost, you have to belong to somebody first. The lost sheep already belonged to the shepherd. The lost coin already belonged to the woman. We, all of us human sinners, we already belong to God, who is the ultimate Good Shepherd. God, as the Good Shepherd, comes from the prophet Ezekiel, who writes, For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus promises that he won't lose anyone the Father has given him. That's us he's talking about. We, the baptized. We, the ones sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own. Jesus searches for and rescues those he loves, his sheep, his people. That's the good news here. Even if we fail and break the rules, even if we turn away from God, God will find us and draw us back to him. In these parables, there is no shame or condemnation. There's repentance. We always need to be turning back to God when we've wandered away. But here in these parables, and the one about the prodigal son that you'll hear next week, we find only the love of the living God as revealed in Jesus Christ, who searches, finds, and rejoices because God's sole reason for creating us was to be in relationship with us. So when we stray, which most of us do on a regular basis, we can take solace in knowing that what God gave to Israel in the Exodus and to Paul in the Timothy reading was mercy. He drew them to himself. I think the Pharisees and scribes worry that God has made himself too easily available to sinners. They think we need to deserve it. But today's gospel reminds us that in the upside-down, inside-out kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated by his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension, God is easily available to everyone. Unlike our own culture, which makes everything a contest where a few winners rejoice at the expense of a bunch of losers. In the kingdom of God, there is no shame and there are no losers. The God we worship is a God of love and so he loves us into holiness. I'm gonna say that again. The God we worship is a God of love and so he loves us into holiness. These parables speak the truth that it is God's action that saves us and not our own. Like the lost sheep and the lost coin, you and I cannot simply get found all on our own. They reveal a God who is on a search and rescue mission, the one who scours the hills and carries us home, who sweeps the dark corners of the house by lamplight. Who? when he finds us, breaks out into unrestrained joy and invites all of heaven to a party.